Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a journey of commercial discovery. The only show dedicated to the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Welcome to the Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. With me today is Sampath, the Global Chief Revenue Officer at Verizon Business. Welcome, Sampath. James, thank you so much for having me. I'm going to give you the most broadest, most open question you'll probably ever get from media. Obviously, we've been through a, a pandemic. I'm not sure how much travel you've done, but you're in this part of the world right now. So tell me, how's the world changed? What's the world look like now that you've been out amongst it? I think uh, putting aside the human impact, the human suffering and the resilience of people, putting that aside, what we are seeing in business is just massive change. And it mostly relates to digital. I have seen probably five, six, seven, in some cases, 10 years worth of digital progress in the last two years. And it has been across large companies, government agencies, and small business has all been impacted by that. And for the most part, it's good. It's getting them closer to their customer. It's improving their margin profile. They're getting into new areas. So I think digital has been probably the only silver lining in all of the pandemic. Okay. So we heard this when the pandemic hit within a year's worth of transformation in six weeks and 10 years in a, in a year. I'm sort of interested now that there's a lot of, uh, you know, this trend towards return to work and these hybrid environments. So I'm sort of interested, rather than the difference between pre-pandemic to now, what's the difference sort of in the last six months? Like what's been that sort of ongoing piece of transformation that's just happened more recently? I think this return to work is going to take various different forms. At the core of it, people are going to want flexibility. They're going to be wanting to work where they want to work. And large companies, small companies are going to have to adapt to make that real. And you have to do this in the context of maintaining a company's culture and the competitive advantage you have. It's not an easy thing. And I think that's probably the single biggest opportunity and risk area for companies is how do you maintain that forward momentum when half your employees don't show up for work and the other half do? How do you have that unifying culture? How do you communicate well? So I think that's going to be a big point. The second is you're going to see some habits revert back to mean. So for example, e-commerce is a big one. There's going to be a lot of progress in e-commerce, but people are going to still go back to shops and retail to do some shopping. So how do you create omni-shopping or omni-environments to do that? Now that's in the retail space. Every industry has its own version of omni-retail where you're going to have to cross across two worlds, a digital world and a brick and mortar world. So how do you get ready for that and how do you keep innovating on that? So just on the return to work, and I guess we're talking, you know, all sorts of different environments from factories to offices, but there, there's a culture piece and there's a technology piece, neither of which I take it are particularly easy to solve. But how does the technology piece help underpin cultural change in that? It's all going to come down to employee engagement. People want to feel part of something. They want to feel part of a broader mission. And technology helps in that. The very fact that you know you do video conference today is a big change from three years ago. It helps with the connection. But you're using other tools, a lot of asynchronous tools to stay in touch. But how do you keep the communication open? There is no real substitute for live meetings. So one of the things we are doing here at Verizon is a combination where folks come into office two days a week. They work from home anywhere from one to five days a week, depending on the nature of their job. But it's moments that matter. So when they are in the office, they just don't come, sit in a conference room, stare at their screen, 
and talk on Zoom or Blue Jeans to their colleagues. That's an absolute waste of time. So when they are back in the office, how do you create moments that matter? How do you bring people together to collaborate on problems, to solve customer issues in a different way? So that helps with engagement. It also helps employees have meaningful roles. Let's have a look at Verizon then. I mean, you've mapped out the kinds of structure that you want in place for your employees. How's that work? I mean, we're probably having enough water under the bridge to get a full understanding of what productivity looks like. But from a uh, finger in the wind, what do you think is happening here? I think hybrid work is hard. Whoever says they have cracked it, I, I want to talk to them. Because when you have a set of employees in the office and you have another set at home, when everyone's online, it's a pretty easy thing to do because everyone has equal say, equal voice in the program. But when you have people that are split, it's quite difficult. Part of it is how you conduct meetings, whether you're at home or in the office. How do you make it inclusive? How do you bring in people into the conversation? How do you use different tools, you know, polls, you know, online shared documents to bring everyone in? So I would say hybrid work is hard, but look, we are practitioners of that and we are all leaning in. We've given some best practices to our employees to work with it, but I don't think the final manual on hybrid work has been written yet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's very interesting. Very, very interesting indeed. Okay, let's move on. 5G. So prior to joining Verizon Business, you were working with Boston Consulting Group and led the 5G practice in the US. Is that right? Yeah, I led the global telecom practice uh, you know, globally uh, around uh, tech and telcos. Okay, so here's what I want to ask. We know that 4G kind of changed everything with its introduction. Like It really changed the world in a massive way. I feel like we've been waiting a while for 5G to have the kind of impact that 4G certainly had. Now, I know in hindsight, these things tend to get a little bit truncated, but I wonder when are we going to really see that hit and where is it starting to hit? And what's that famous saying, you know, how does change happen slowly and then suddenly? You know, 5G is in a pretty similar place. I'll tell you, just based on the U.S. experience, right now we have around 35% of all our handsets that are 5G capable. At the same time in 4G, we had probably between 15 and 20%. So we are almost double of where we were at the same time in the migration to 5G, where we were to 4G. So it's definitely moving faster. The second piece is we've already seen benefits today. Three major areas. The first is mobility. When you give people reliable networks with very high throughput speeds, you tend to take share. We have seen that with every technology, 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G, and now I'm seeing it with 5G as well. When you're the first to market, you offer the right price point and the right value equation for the customer, you take share. So that's a good use case for us. The second one is fixed wireless access, or what very creatively we call business internet. Historically, when someone wanted a broadband connection to their home, you had to pull in a fiber, you had to pull in a cable. Now, I know the Australian concept is a little different with NBN, but 5G becomes a credible broadband option for homes. It's a new business case, and we are literally making money on that today. We're not waiting. The third is something where we are creating the market together with our hyperscale partners, you know, Google, AWS, and Microsoft, what we call the mobile edge compute, where you bring the power of 5G towards the edge of the cloud together and you unlock use cases that are mostly dependent on bandwidth, security, and latency. So you have three very big business models for 5G today, two of which are already in production. You know, as they say, in production, the checks are being cashed. On the mobile edge compute, we are moving from 
prototypes to some very early commercial deployments right now. So I'm really happy with the speed and way the 5G has started monetizing. So tell me, can you just dig into a little bit more detail on mobile edge compute with those bigger players? Now, we're talking business-to-business applications here. Can you sort of give me some tactile examples? Let's start with ports. Australia has some of the largest ports, both container as well as raw material that it exports there. And you take Australian concept, whether it's large campuses, whether it's large ports, large venues, your famous cricket fields there. It's perfect for a private 5G environment. We have one in Southampton Port in in UK, where it was a large port, very busy port, both a cruise terminal as well as a container and a dry goods terminal as well. And we have a private 5G network there that is used to control the cranes, control the equipment, control the scanners, that everything goes there. And they've seen a huge reduction in accidents, in downtime, better productivity coming off. That's just one example. We've started working with Corning, which is one of the world's most sophisticated manufacturers. They make fiber optic and we put it in their plant and a lot of their robotics and their PLCs are controlled by 5G. We use it for quality management and defect management, but we have literally 40 other use cases in the factory floor that we are working on. The third is healthcare. You see a large hospital environment. There's so much of data moving around from the devices, from the patient, from laptops, from handhelds. So having a secure 5G network connected to a mobile edge that can do compute in the hospital prem. So those are three immediate use cases that we've already unlocked and deployed. So tell me, in Australia, or take the region more broadly, I suppose, but in terms of those sorts of areas, industrial automation or healthcare or whatever it is, are you seeing activity in this part of the world or are these generally early use cases in the US and Europe? In the US and Europe, we are in uh, deployment. In other words, we've deployed some of these solutions. We have a very large funnel, probably two, 300 client funnel that we are working on. In Asia, we just launched private 5G quite recently. So we built a pretty good funnel, but again, nothing to announce as of yet. But I like the pace. I like the pace that uh, some of our partners here are getting involved in the business because private 5G requires partners to change their workflows. Because that's when they get the true value of 5G, whether it's quality management, whether it's defect management, whether it's controlling the robotics. And it takes a while to do it. So I, I think timing-wise, we are in pretty good shape. All right. I'm going to move to cybersecurity, which is obviously a big area for Verizon generally, but uh, Verizon business specifically. Okay. This is a giant topic. When you look around the world today, all the different levels of geostrategic tensions and the strategic competition and Ukraine, Russia, you know, how has that had a, a direct impact on the way you guys operate and your own sort of cybersecurity efforts? James, uh, Verizon is a very unique vantage point because around 35% of the world's internet flows through our network. And you think about it, that's a lot of Netflix and a lot of Fortnite traffic. Of course, there's some pretty critical uh, business traffic as well, but yes, there is a lot of you know, gaming and video traffic that flows through it. But when you have almost one third of the world's internet traffic flow through our network, we get to see patterns and we get to see bad actors well before most other people do. So, you know, there's a conflict going on. There are a lot of regional tensions. We are in a heightened state of alert for two reasons. One, to protect our own network because of the magnitude and the size and scale of our network. But second, and equally important, our customer networks. You know, we protect some of the largest Fortune 500 companies in the world. 
as well as some of the most critical government infrastructure around the world. So for both those points, we are on heightened alert right now. Look, we've not seen anything we don't like, but you know what? We are in heightened alert at this point. Okay, we know that uh, Verizon runs a follow-the-sun operation as far as watching that network traffic. I understand in Australia you have quite a large cybersecurity operations centre in Canberra. Okay, so you're watching this stuff. Where's the manpower to look after operations like this? It just seems that everyone is so hamstrung by their ability to get the kind of levels of skills that you need in the numbers that you need. Yeah, this has been a pretty important point for us. At the core of the issue, we have some of the best talent in the world to do this across the world. But two areas we are really working on is automation and AI. Because what we want to do is take some of these large complex and automate them and use AI to get to the next level. So what happens is you keep adding headcount, but your business can scale much faster in that piece. So that's how we do this automation and AI quite consistently. Now, we also need to do a lot of reskilling and upskilling of labor. We see that in our country, in the US, I don't know, Australia, especially the Australian government has just a phenomenal program around reskilling cyber job. It's probably one of the most ambitious programs anywhere in the world. And it's pretty exciting to see where Australia is taking cyber as a core competency for the country. It's a national mission. And there's something pretty cool about that when the whole country gets behind a particular mission. And in this case, it's cyber. Yeah, this is amazing. Might be unkind to say they're spraying money at it, but there's certainly a lot of money being put towards cybersecurity right now. The most recent federal budget allocated 9.8, I think, billion dollars to the Australian Signals directed over the next 10 years as part of both an upskilling program, capability upgrade, and to hire a bunch more people. So they've just put a huge amount of money in the market to find those talented people. I think they've already got hundreds of open vacancies right now. So the market for finding these people is ultra competitive. Two things. Finding these people is ultra competitive. Retaining them is even more ultra competitive. So you have two different plays going on here. Look, when it comes to developing this talent, there's a couple of things that come to mind. One is, you know, Australia needs to ensure that it has the right training systems and frameworks and forums to do that. And part of it is relying on trusted partners to bring the best of talent. The relationship between Australia and the U.S. is, you know, the first among equals, just given our deep history that we share together. And U.S. over the last 20, 30 years has probably invested more in cyber than anywhere else on Earth. So how do you bring some of those global capabilities to bear in Australia? And you've got to use trusted partners to do that because trying to invent everything is probably not the best thing. You've got to rely on what's already been invented to do that. The last point is diversity. You know, when you create a program like this, you want to ensure that you attract people from different backgrounds, different groups. Because if you notice the cyber specialists around the world is a very diverse group of people. So you want to recreate that in your country. So there's a very interesting diversity point that uh, we see across most cyber groups around the world. I ask you, this is a, a question that probably sounds a bit strange asking a chief revenue officer of a global company, but I'll ask anyway. We talked about geostrategic tension before and that, that competitive environment. What about programs like the Quad? These are national security focused kind of defence type relationships of you know, US, Japan, Australia and India. How does a marquee US brand, you know, how do you get tied into that or become a part of that or support that? Verizon operates in 150 countries, but coincidentally, these four are some of our most important countries. 
Australia for the work we do there, US there we are based, Japan we support some of the largest Japanese companies and their global aspirations. And India is a huge market, but more importantly, we do a lot of our services there, technology groups sit there. So these four are very important countries for us. But where we tend to get more involved is we share common democratic values between these four countries. There's a common value system. And when you can use that to promote trade and openness of innovation, it is very good for all the companies in that quad. So that's how we get involved in it. We want to lower the barriers, have more trade, open innovation across those four countries in a respectful and a trusted manner. And that creates opportunities for us all. Well, I appreciate you having a crack at that one. That was very good. So finish up, we'll round out with a question more pertinent to a Chief Revenue Officer. Business outlook globally, given where we are in a pandemic, given where we are also in a lot of markets with skill shortages and work from home and hybrid working, all of those things, what does it make a telco like yours look like in terms of a business outlook? A couple of big trends globally that impacts us. One is supply chain concerns especially around the semiconductor space. It tends to very quickly get to some of our critical projects. So that's an area that uh, impacts global trade. Second is, look, interest rates are rising around the world. And third, there's some regional tensions, coupled with labor shortage. Some of it is created by the pandemic. Some of it is created by infungible labor movement between companies. That's the global context we are in. But we have never been more bullish about our business. James, to give you a sense, between 2021, 22, and 23, We'll invest $120 billion in our business. We have never invested this level of investment ever. And we are so comfortable making that investment. For us in Asia, there are three vectors of growth that we get excited about. The first one is network as a service. If you're a large Asian company who have global aspirations, worry about everything except the network. Leave the network to specialists and scaled players like us. We will offer to you as a service. The second is cyber. We are one of the largest cyber providers in the world today, and it's a growing market for us, especially in Asia, where we somehow have probably our best professionals and technologists in the world. The third one is 5G, private 5G more specifically. It is the backbone of the fourth industrial revolution. And as people onshore manufacturing more, bring back some of their manufacturing, they're going to have to drive productivity and use robotics a lot more. 5G becomes the unifying theme and the connector of that. So those are our three themes. We are super excited about the years ahead. And uh, James, thank you so much. We really appreciate you having on the commercial disco. Thank you, Sam Path, Chief Revenue Officer at Verizon Business. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And please go over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our recent stories on tech, innovation, and public policy. Or you can follow us on social media to ask us any questions or be a guest on the show. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you a great week ahead.